It's Jim. It's the World of Bonds. It's the Year of the Wabbit, Monday the 23rd of January 2023. This is for professional investors only. Never, ever investment advice. Now, it was announced at the weekend that Brazil and Argentina are about to start talks on creating a single currency zone across the two Latin American nations. Um, Brazil suggests that this will be called the Sur, which means South, and this is all according to the FT, who said that initially this would be a, a currency that would run parallel to both the Brazilian real and the Argentinian peso. The aim, though, would be for it to become the currency and for it to spread to the rest of Latin America, to any other countries that wanted to adopt it. Um, the FT estimates that this would make it around about 5% of global GDP. That compares to the eurozone of about 14%. So in theory, not as big a deal as something like the euro. Uh, but if you look at the Twitter feed of former IMF World Bank guru, Olivia Blanchard, um, he tweeted a, a three-word analysis of this idea. This is insane. And most of the comments uh, around the FT article on Twitter and what have you are asking why on earth Brazil would want to tie its economy to that of Argentina, uh, where in Argentina inflation at 90% plus, serial defaulter, capital controls, fiscal instability, all of those sorts of things. Does this sound like an optimal currency area? Now, the idea of an optimal currency area really um, developed in the 1960s. A guy called Robert Mundell gets most of the credit for it. And it has, I guess, four key features to it. The first one is to be an optimal currency area, i.e. to to make it uh, economically worthwhile for you to tie your currencies together irrevocably. These are the key features that you need. The first one is labour mobility. So you need to be able to have workers move from uh, areas of surplus to areas of shortage. In Europe, you might say that might be um, uh, Spain, Italy towards, well, in those days, um, Germany or Scandinavia or somewhere like that, from cold areas to hot areas in terms of um, unemployment rates. And in order for that to be able to happen... The things that would really help you would be to have a common language like you do in the United States. So you can move from um, Chicago to Los Angeles without struggling for months, if not years, to be able to speak the language. Also, in labour mobility, you'd want to be able to move your pension around. You'd want there to be equal workers' rights so that um, you don't encourage corporations to move to the, the area with without health and safety legislation in order to, to make more profits. So that's kind of the first important uh, column that you need in order to, to support an optical currency area. Other things you need, capital mobility, so the ability to move money around the the optimal currency area, and price and wage flexibility. So, again, you need uh, poor areas to be able to reduce their wages to attract workers uh, from other areas and for prices and wages to fall in areas of weak demand and rise in areas of strong demand as a mechanism to balance it out. And so if you have government intervention, keeping wages high, for instance, in, in an area where they're not justified to be high, then that's going to stymie the, your ability for the OCA to be effective. The next one, you want some ability to fiscally transfer uh, across the OCA. 
So again, this is a kind of rich to poor mechanism to allow poor areas to develop infrastructure, those sorts of things. If you think about the European uh, community, you even in the UK, you still drive through there today, places like Manchester, you'll see that the flyover was built with European community funds. So, you know, some sort of mechanism to uh, rebalance rich areas and poor areas. And obviously that's a very difficult argument to make for uh, the richer populations who generally want to stay richer, um, easier sell for the poorer nations. And I guess the example here of where it becomes very tricky, although I guess in the end it did work out, but during the Eurozone crisis, the transfers that Germany had to make to Greece uh, despite, for instance, German retirement ages being way higher than those in the peripheral Europe. Um, difficult arguments to make. So that's another thing that, you know, the more you can do that, the stronger your optimal currency area will be. And then finally, uh, you'd want business cycles to be generally synchronised. And remember, those were lots of the tests that Gordon Brown put in for the UK of whether it would join the euro area. You want things like inflation rates and growth rates to be similar uh, to those in other economies. Otherwise, you end up with uh, problems. And I guess the UK, again, is the big problem poster child of this when we left the European exchange rate mechanism. Um, we did that because Germany was overheating and it needed interest rates up across Europe. Um, but in the UK, we were not overheating. But in order to keep our currency within the bands that we'd set in the ERM, we needed to hike interest rates, even though it was against our interest to do so and caused a lot of pain economically for us. And we thrived when we, uh, when, when we left the European exchange rate mechanism. Uh, because we were able to cut interest rates instantly. So those are kind of the four pillars of an optimal currency area. And I think me, like uh, Olivia Blanchard, would look at Argentina and Brazil and say it probably doesn't look like an optimal currency area in many respects. And I think a lot of people are pretty sceptical that this is going to go any further than uh, a few summits in Latin America over the course of the remainder of this year. But who knows? Let's follow up on Japan, because um, not least because I mixed up the recording, the naming, the dating of last week's podcast. So if you missed the Japan podcast on yield curve control last week, or even worse than that, if you listen to it twice, uh, I apologise. But to summarise, we didn't get any change to yield curve control uh, last week, and there was a lot of speculation. I mean, Citigroup said it was a, a done deal that uh, yield curve control would disappear last week. Um, in fact, not only did it not disappear, but there was no change to those bands, the plus or minus 50 basis points for the 10-year JGB um, yield, effectively putting a cap and a floor to those yield levels. Um, remember, December did give us a surprise move when that moved from plus or minus 25 to plus or minus 50. Uh, we didn't get a move last week, though, and the yen has weakened a little bit since then. So uh, we're now up at 130 against the US dollar from about 127.9 before that announcement. Uh, although it's fairly trivial when you look at the, the strength that we've seen over the past few months. Um, and the dollar's actually a little bit weak today as well, too. 10-year JGB yields are now at 39 basis points. Uh, before the yield curve control no change announcement last week, 
we had started trading outside the band up at 53 basis points. And if you look at another measure of this uh, kind of swaps market, we were trading up at 90 basis points. So that market had very much started trading in anticipation of a significant widening of the band that didn't occur. So JGB bond yields back down below the 50 basis points at 39 basis points. I've got a few key dates for you and a hat tip to Pictay uh, put out this chart um, recently. So by the 10th of February, we're going to get a new governor of the Bank of Japan. The nominee will be announced. The favourite by quite a long way is Amamiya. Here we go again. Also, we have Nakaso, who's similarly regarded as a continuity candidate. As an outsider, there's um, Yamaguchi, maybe more radical in ending yield curve control and so forth and normalising Japanese monetary policy. But the 10th of March will be Kuroda's last meeting as governor of the Bank of Japan. Then the next big kind of economic move we get in Japan is something called the Shunto round. Shunto is the spring wage round and there still is a degree of collectivised, um, almost corporative um, wage negotiation where all the big companies will negotiate with unions and employees and so forth about wages. And obviously for quite a long time wage growth has been subdued in Japan. People are saying if it, you know, the, the result of that Shanto spring wage round comes in with wages over 3% on aggregate, then that will trigger a, a fairly significant response from the Bank of Japan. But the 28th of April will be the new governor, whoever it is, his first BOJ meeting. So just a few dates to look out for over coming, uh, coming months. I'm going to end with the news that ChatGPD, which is obviously that AI thing that everyone talks about all the time nowadays, um, it just passed the Wharton MBA exam on its own, um, which is pretty astoundingly uh, good. Well, it, it's either a testimony of how good chat GPT is or it's something uh, else. Uh, anyway, I would be mean about MBAs at this point, but I am recording this podcast at home and my wife is in the next room, so I'm going to be quiet here. Have a good week. Bye.